Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Annette Joseph Gabriel, co-host of the channel New Books in Literary Studies. It is my great pleasure today to talk with Brent Hayes Edwards about quite literally his new books in literary studies. It is rare and wonderful to have the opportunity to hear from an author who has not one but two new books. Our conversation today will focus on the book Phantom Africa, a translation of Michel Lewis's L'Afrique Phantom. Later on in our chat, we'll also hear a bit about a second book, Epistrophes, Jazz, and the Literary Imagination. Brent Edwards is a professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. His previous books include The Practice of Diaspora, Literature, Translation, and the Rise of Black Internationalism, and the co-edited collection Uptown Conversation, New Jazz Studies. Brent, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So just a little bit of context for our listeners. Um, Phantom Africa is a text by Michel Liris, um, a French writer who was part of a state-sponsored expedition called the Mission Dakar Djibouti um, to document knowledge about the cultures of communities in West and East Africa. And the expedition returned to France with artifacts that were obtained by hook or by crook, it, it appears mostly by crook. Um, but in, in his capacity as secretary archivist, which is an interesting title, um, Lily's recorded the events and actions of this trip that took place between 1931 and 1933. Those records are what then becomes Phantom Africa. I usually begin by asking authors to tell us a little bit about how they came to their project. And I think that question, Brent, is particularly pertinent to a work of translation such as yours, because it is quite a hefty tome. Um, I'm looking at the book now, and it's it's a solid 700 and something pages. <laughs> um, but you mentioned in one of your footnotes that the London-based publisher Robert Hale tried to publish an abridged translation that Lewis rejected. So what brought you to Lewis's work and to translating this particular text, especially given its length? Well, <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's a long story, which may be appropriate for such a long book. Uh, right. It's only six or seven years into the translating process that you start to appreciate how many pages seven hundred and twenty really is. <laughs> wow. uh, I I didn't know the story of the previous translation, the Robin Chancellor translation that was done in the early nineteen fifties when Leris was re uh, was releasing a, a second edition of the book that was published in French in 1951. His friend and the British translator, Robin Chancellor, did a version, actually completed a full version of uh, L'Afrique Fantôme in English that he had planned to publish with this UK-based publishing house, Robert Hale. Robert Hale, the, the editor, the, the publisher and editor at that press, was very much involved and he saw the sample pages and was frankly offended by what he took to be the obscenity of Leris's book, which recounts erotic dreams and uh, scenes of uh, even things like masturbation um, as Leris is, is working on this French anthropological mission. Hale was offended to the point that he said, look, I can't publish a book that has this kind of stuff in it. Let's, uh, can we publish an excerpted or abridged version of it? The translator, Chancellor, said, I'm not sure. <laughs> Michel Eris wanted the whole thing to be published. And Hale, the publisher, took it upon himself to write to Leris 
And Leary said, no, I'm sorry. I told Chancellor when he started the project that if you're going to translate it, you have to translate the whole thing. At that point, Hale, the British publisher, just dropped it. And they tried to, they tried to, Chancellor tried to take it to some publishers in the U.S., but no one would pick it up in the early 1950s. So it's, it's a sad story from the perspective of the translator who put in that much work. Um, I came in much later, and as I was working on the book uh, over the past uh, seven or eight years, doing research uh, on Leris's various editions, found some of the traces of that earlier collaborative attempt to translate it. Otherwise, people there. Are, I know of a few people who at least thought about or started to try to translate it into English, but I think partly because it's such a massive text, mm-hmm. no one had gotten very far. In terms of my own entry into Leris and into this particular book, I the first Leris book I had read was his first autobiography. He's probably best known. He's well known in French uh, literary circles as an anthropologist but also as an autobiographer. He's one of the great autobiographers in 20th century French literature. But he's best known in that respect for his quartet that's published over multiple decades. The overarching title of the quartet is The Rules of the Game, La Règle du Jeu. And uh, those books are extraordinary in their own right. Three of them have been translated now by Lydia Davis, um, who's a well-known translator who's done versions of Proust and Flaubert, Madame Bovary, among many other things. She's translated the first three volumes of, of that quartet. The last one is being translated by Richard Seaberth, um, but it's not out yet. I had read, the first Larry's I read was his first autobiography, which is a single book he published in 1939 called L'Age d'Homme. It was translated in the early 60s, the first of Leris's books to be translated by Richard Howard, another well-known um, English language translator under the title Manhood. Um, there's a famous scene in that book, which is about his upbringing in Paris, his early interactions with André Breton and Juan Miro and other surrealists in the early and mid-1920s in Paris, and his gravitation towards the literary circles of Paris and then uh, eventually toward anthropology. There's a scene in that book that when I first read it, when I was a college student, really grabbed me. It's a scene where he's talking about hanging out as a young man in his early 20s in Montmartre. This is the the, the Paris of the 20s, the lost generation, uh, the jazz scene in Paris in Montmartre and Montparnasse. And he's going out with friends like uh, Desnos, uh, like uh, Georges Bataille, other surrealist-influenced or surrealist-connected writers, hanging out in these African-American jazz clubs. And in one of these passages, he describes going to a club and saying he's fascinated with what he took to be the primitivism of jazz, the the atmosphere of, he takes it to be a kind of almost possession, a trance-like atmosphere, that there's a transport uh, occasioned by the music that uh, that is something like um, a ritualistic ceremony. And he says it's his fascination, his fascination with what he took to be these qualities in African-American music that compelled him, that primed him um, to be interested in Africa. And to, to when he was asked a couple of years later by Marcel Griot, the French anthropologist, to join this Mission Dakar Djibouti, this expedition to, to Africa, to sign up and go along as the secretary archivist. So he says at the end of this quote, I quoted in the introduction to the translation, um, in jazz came the first appearance of Negroes, 
the manifestation and the myth of black Edens, the Garden of Eden, Eden, which were to lead me to Africa and beyond Africa to ethnography. And I was fascinated by that idea that listening to jazz, so listening to New World African-American expression um, in the nightlife scene in Paris, through this kind of triangulation, you would it's your imagination of, of African-American uh, uh, creative expression that takes you to Africa and that takes you to the discipline, that takes you to ethnography. I was fascinated with that. And then I read more Leris over time, uh, especially the journal that he and Georges Bataille and Marcel Greol, the anthropologist, others were involved in called Documents, Documents, that was publishing somewhere between surrealism and uh, the fine arts and anthropology in Paris in uh, 1929 to 1931, right before he goes on this mission. So I started getting, I, I wrote a, one of the first things I published was about this journal, Document, and I was fascinated by that whole world. Some I met later on, uh, about eight years ago when this project started, the publisher of Seagull Books, the, the press based in Kolkata in India, that has ended up publishing the book. And Naveen Kishore, the editor and publisher of that press, said to me when we met through uh, some of my colleagues here at Columbia who've done a lot of work with Seagull, Naveen, uh, who's a daring and and very generous um, publisher, he said to me, Brent, you have to do something for us. I'd love to have you do something for our French list. They were starting an Africa list. Mm. And uh, are there any books you'd be interested in? I said, you know, there's this book that's kind of legendary. It's very well known and written about a lot, uh, L'Afrique Fantôme, but it's never appeared in English. And he said, go for it. Uh, and that's when I remembered it was 720 pages. <laughs> <laughs> And eight, eight years later, here we are. Wow, that is such an amazing story. I'm I'm so fascinated by this origin moment because that that quote that you um that you you talk about from the introduction really struck me. This moment where jazz is what takes you to to Africa, but also takes you to the discipline of ethnography. Um, I'm particularly fascinated by that because of the strange genre that is Phantom Africa. So in your introduction, you describe it as, and I quote, a singular work that defies characterization. Um, and this defying characterization happens particularly in relation to genre. So it's part ethnography from someone who at the time was an aspiring poet with no training in the field of anthropology, um, part travelogue and diary. And this characteristic of the text as situated within multiple genres, you show influences how Lyrice uses language, right? So you talk about, for example, um, his convoluted sentences or his awkward tenses and that sort of attempts to keep the reader always in that immediate moment of when the action happens. How does this straddling of multiple genres, that's a characteristic of the text, impact then for you the process of translating the text? Well, it it becomes a big, for me, as I talk about in the introduction, it became a big focus of the work when I realized, uh, and this is part of the reason it didn't get published in the early 50s, that mm. Lairith, it wasn't a kind of quixotic or an egotistical thing that I've written 700 pages, you have to publish them all. Um, he thought that the value of the book was it being a document in the form of a diary, he's writing daily entries of the shifts in his perspective over a nearly two-year period that he's on this uh, mission that starts in Dakar in West Africa and goes across Africa over 
uh, almost two years and ends up in Djibouti, uh, spending a lot of time in Ethiopia in East Africa. He thought that the value of the book had to do with it being a kind of almost uh, in the moment record of his experience and his shifting perspectives. And so you had to, you couldn't just dip in and read one entry and then skip a few months and read the next entry. You had to sit there. The value of the book is that you had to sit there day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year with him as he's dealing with, um, his experience in, uh, a continent that when he goes, he knows nothing about. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a foreign uh, set whole set a whole range of foreign places for him. So the day when I realized that about the book, the day to day preserving that um, in the moment, he calls it. Uh, he says that the book is a premier jet, like a first take. That it's what he wrote down that night about what he had what had gone through what he had gone through that day, and that the value of the book for him is that it's a unvarnished, unmediated. Uh, record of his experience on the ground, or, or as an anthropologist would put it, in the field. He thought that quality was the main point. And when I realized that, I felt as a translator, well, the main thing has to be to preserve that. Mm-hmm. The um, Actually, reading the Chancellor trans- translation, the one that was done and then not published in the early 50s, helped me figure this out. I, it's in a collection at Penn State, and I ordered a copy when I found out that, that he had done this. I ordered a copy, and uh, some translators don't like looking at, at other uh, previous translations, and some do. I found it helpful sometimes just working through particular sentences. Um, there were things that I disagreed with or would have, or did do differently. Uh, some of them were British. You know, he would say lorry instead of a truck. Mm-hmm. Some of them were Britishisms. Um, but the first thing I noticed, the one thing that struck me right away as I started to look through the way he had translated it and compare it with mine is that Chancellor decides to translate the whole thing in the past tense. Mm. And it made me realize. So in other words, at the end of the day, when Laris is writing his entries, usually late at night in his tent, um, or in a rest house when they're on the road in Africa, most people might be inclined to write. Uh, earlier today or this afternoon, we went to see X or we made a trip to do this. Leiris doesn't write that way. He often writes in the present tense. He often says, we go to uh, see this village. We meet with this chief or with this administrator. And chancellors attempt to smooth it over to make everything past tense as though Leiris was a much more conventional diary writer who was just saying, Today, earlier today, we went to, uh, it made me realize that Leiris is actually, it's much messier, the tenses. Sometimes he starts in past tense and goes into present tense. Sometimes the whole thing is in present tense. Uh, and it made me, it convinced me that that fluctuation, that messiness of the verb tenses, it's such a, it's a, the kind of detail that you, you're faced with when you're translating. Um, but that level of detail was important because for Leiris, it was, a template of it was uh, it registered the fluctuation of his states of mind as he's going through and going through his time in Africa and thinking back on what he had gone through that day and his attempt to not write in the past tense but to to try to describe things in the present as though he's describing something as it's happening uh to me it was a, a signal that of that kind of first take quality 
that as a writer, it's almost as though you feel reading the book, you feel many things as you're reading the book mm -hmm. over so many pages. But one of the main things I feel is I feel tugged toward Leiris's in the moment experience. Like he wants to give you the sensation of being with him on that horse as they're riding down the path in Ethiopia, or the sensation of being in front of the uh, colonial administrator uh, who has had too much to drink and is telling off-color stories. He wants to put you in that moment. And even in his language, it's kind of straining toward uh, that first take quality. So I felt as a translator, I've got to be really careful about mm -hmm. trying to trying to represent um, even even though it's messy sometimes, and even though you could smooth it over and make every put everything in the same set in the same tense to uh, quote unquote make it easier for the English language reader. I felt uh, trying to get a sense of what Leris thought the value of the book was that that messiness had to be preserved. So to me, it was a task to try to be very careful with. Even the sentences that were that seemed convoluted, that seemed like if you had gone back and edited it, you might have rewritten the sentence. He says in the book, because when he's halfway through the journey, in the journal, in the book itself, he's writing draft prefaces to the book <laughs> while he's on the trip, um, which don't become the real preface to, to Phantom Africa. So he's got draft prefaces in the book. He's very self-conscious mm -hmm. about writing and about the idea of publishing. And I thought, I've got to, if this guy is so self-conscious, if he's so self-reflexive, if he had wanted to revise it, he would have. He makes a big deal out of the fact that this is a diary that I wrote in the field that I did not retouch. I didn't go back and fix stuff. I didn't rework sentences when I got back to Paris. There are only a few scattered footnotes where he explains things that he decided were too obscure or were mistakes. But otherwise, he makes a big deal out of the fact that hey, I didn't go back and redo this. So to me, as a translator, without making it sound bad, <laughs> like a mistake on my part, right. uh, my job as a translator was to try to preserve that uh, that first take quality, that kind of in-the-momentness. Mm. That, was, that was the challenge. I'm really intrigued by this description of sort of the messiness, um, because that messiness seems to sit next to also a certain kind of sense of order. Um, and I'm thinking of order in terms of the layout. So for example, um, you know, you talk about in your introduction that Lewis describes the journal that he's writing on this trip as something that takes shape in the margins of his more kind of official ethnographic research. And I find that image of the margins really fascinating because when I first looked at the book, um, one of the things that struck me was the layout of Phantom Africa. So in your introduction, the bibliographic references and notes are in footnotes at the bottom of the page. And then in the translation itself, um, Lerisa's comments and your notes both appear in the margins on the right side of the page. So there seems to be this kind of interaction between what's happening almost in the center of the page and what's happening in the margins. Can you talk a little bit about this interaction between center and periphery or center and margins in both Lerisa's work and your translation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I mean, this is a book that makes you, it makes you go meta because uh, right. he's, he's already um, working on this meta level. Mm -hmm. um, as you already said, even in introducing it, 
Um, part of what's special and unusual uh, about this book, unique about this book, it's a portrait of French anthropology from within, mm. but Leris is not an anthropologist. He's a, an aspiring poet um, and kind of broke a dissident surrealist at that point when he signs up to go on this mission. So he's not trained. He's participating in the ethnographic research they're doing, but he's not trained as an ethnographer at that point. Later, he gets a graduate degree and publishes more conventional studies. So he's working as the secretary and archivist of this expedition, keeping all the records, keeping notes on the stuff they're collecting. And as you said, sometimes stealing, but <laughs> this, and he's writing the official report. There is an official report of the Mission Dakar Djibouti, okay. but this book is not that. And he is very, he's again, saying this in the book, this is a diary that he's keeping every night and he's sending secretly to his wife set in Paris. He's making carbon copies of it as he's writing it. And he's being very careful not to show it to Marcel Griol, the anthropologist who's running the, the, the expedition. He talks about it with a couple of the, uh, his friends on the team, but he's very careful not to show it to Griol, the anthropologist who's his boss, because he knows that it's not standard anthropology. Mm -hmm. It's really written in the margins of the anthropological work that they're doing. And he's talking about some things, not only the personal things and his um, emotional and even erotic responses to the Africa they're moving to, mm -hmm. but also in terms of the field work they're doing, as you said, he is, all the anthropologists who were practicing anthropology under colonialism were doing this, but Leiris is one of the most famous and definitely the most detailed examples of a book that tells, uh, as you said, hook and crook, the crook part, <laughs> that they are blackmailing people, they are bribing people, they're threatening to call the authority, the colonial authorities in, if you don't sell us that statue uh, for this amount, we're going to have to call in the, the regional administrator. Um, they're even going to the measure of, uh, they see an, a, a religious altar or an artifact during the day, and they sneak back out in the middle of the night and break into uh, ritual places to steal objects. Wow. Uh, nobody else is writing about this kind of stuff. <laughs> so Leris is, is uh, even if we're talking about the, the, the way they were practicing anthropology, he's mm -hmm. divulging some stuff that they didn't want, that Marcel Griol, his boss, didn't want people to know about mm -hmm. um, because they, the way they talked about their work was to preserve and to honor and to document uh, the cultural achievements of African civilizations. They thought of, uh, even when they were stealing things, they thought it was justified because it was a way of showing to European museum audiences and that all these almost 4,000 artifacts that they stole uh, or stole or bought uh, went back to become the main collection at the Musée de l'Homme in Paris, which is now the main core of the collection at the Quai Branly, the big uh, ethnographic museum that's still very much uh, uh, a point of attraction in Paris. Um, Leiris is, is spilling the beans, <laughs> as it were. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the diary, this book, Phantom Africa, is on the margins of, it's on the edge of the anthropological work, and it's even written against the more conventional anthropological research they're doing, because he's, he's uh, it's a kind of confessional. In his first preface to the first edition, he calls it um, a certain kind of confession, in a quoting Rousseau, 
and it functions as that. So it's, it's, it's an interestingly marginal for such a big book. It's an interestingly marginal book. Mm-hmm. Um, now with, with my translation, I actually, I, the, the layout was actually not my, uh, decision. The, Seagull, the the press that published it in India, it's a very small operation, and really, there's one woman in particular uh, who did, I think, an extraordinary job in putting the book together. The layout is beautiful, um, and also copy editing the book. And uh, she decided to do the notes, both my footnotes and Leirace's notes, in the margins of uh, of the text as you go along. Instead of putting it up at, at the end, what I would have done <laughs> if I had been doing the layout mm-hmm. was actually in the in the vein of what I was saying before about respecting as a translator Leiris's sense of what was important and unique about his text as being that kind of first take quality. Um, he very deliberately, when he came back to Paris and published the book in 1934, as I said, he put a few footnotes. So notes at the bottom of the page that made certain corrections or filled in when, when there was a, he used a, an indigenous term and felt he needed to gloss it or explain, translate it um, for his French language reader. He would do that. Very spare footnotes. Then the book goes out of print in the, we're right on the verge of World War II then. And the book went out of print and was republished in 1951 after the war. And at that point, he went back and added more notes that were uh, some more corrections, some more commentary. Some of it is more in the vein of, I wrote that in 1934. I would never say something uh, that naive now. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is that kind of depth, self-deprecating voice. But he puts those, I think, deliberately as end notes. So the, the editions, and there are five different editions of this book, after 1951, they all have footnotes and end notes. So notes at the bottom of the page and notes at the end of the book. And the notes at the end of the book, they don't even have reference numbers. You go to the back of the book and in the French edition, and it says just page 76, paragraph three. It doesn't even tell you what sentence it's referring to. It just is a very, so you have to flip back and forth to try to figure out what the reference is to. Um, If I had been doing the layout, I would have, tried to respect that. So I would have used only footnotes throughout the book, just the ones that Larry's had included. And then I would have put the other notes at the back of the book. And there are multiple kinds of notes. (laughs) Um, It wasn't just the amount of pages, but it was also that this book is a multi-layered book that that made it a very difficult translation project. It's an Mm -hmm. editing project as much as a translation project. So he has the 1934 books at the bottom of the page, 1951 and notes at the end of the book. Then I have translators notes that sometimes explain other things or uh, historical. He mentions some historical things that are going on in France in the early 1930s that I thought an American reader, an English language reader um, in the UK or in, in South Asia might not know. So I explained some historical stuff. And then the other thing that he's doing that I felt I had to include He's working as an anthropologist. He's working as a secretary, archivist of the mission. He's writing this diary that's going to be published as Phantom Africa. And he's also writing, again, almost every day, letters to his wife that he's then sending with sections of the diary back to her to keep 
to be published when he comes back. And his letters to his wife are really interesting because sometimes he talks about the same stuff he talked about in the diary, but he writes about it. He describes it in a different way. Mm -hmm. He's in Ethiopia where they spend uh, almost half of the trip. They're in residence there for a long time. He gets, he actually lives, goes and lives with um, a, a particular uh, possession cult, uh, the Tsar possession cult in Gondar, Ethiopia. And he ends up doing his more, one of his more conventional anthropological books about this possession cult, about Tsar possession in Ethiopia. He becomes there infatuated with the daughter of the priestess of this possession cult, whose name is Emma Waish. Uh, uh, erotically infatuated with her. So he's describing that in the diary. And then he writes his wife a letter sometime, the same night, often <laughs> saying, don't worry about that stuff that I'm saying about Emma She's I'm not really infatuated with her. It's nothing, <laughs> nothing compared to you, honey. Um, and he puts that in the letter. So I felt that when I uh, read that material in the there's, there are two volumes of Leris's work in La Pléiade, which is like the French equivalent to the Library of America, um, in these big volumes. And then there's another collection that came out about 20 years ago of Leris's writings about Africa. And both those books include some of these letters to his wife, along with all his own notes. So my end notes, uh, or what I would have used, what I would have put as end notes at the back of the book would have included my translator's notes his notes from 1951 and these quotes from the letters to his wife. And basically the copy editor and, and, uh, and designer of Seagull, the press that that's published the book, um, as she was doing the layout, she just thought it was too much to ask it with a 700 page book to ask your reader to be flipping back and forth with all these different kinds of notes all the way to the end of the book. You know how annoying that can be <laughs> with end notes uh, in academic books to be flipping to the back and trying to remember which page you were on. Right. And so she, she came up with this idea of using these wider pages and putting the notes in the margins. And then I just marked which ones were 1934, which ones are 1951, which ones are translators notes. Um, but I would have, I get, it's a little bit punitive um, <laughs> to your reader, but in, in the, uh, urge to try to respect Leiris's wishes or to try to honor what I think he, what, the value, the uniqueness of his text was. Um, I would have been inclined to put everything but the footnotes from the original edition at the back and make the reader flip back and forth. <laughs> so she, she did that. And then they sent me the page proofs. And at that point I couldn't really say, uh, <laughs> go back and redo the whole book. Right. And, and it and it looks beautiful, and it is. Uh, it, it, there is something to be said when you're asking your reader to wade through 700 pages already. Um, <laughs> there's something to be said for minimizing the punishment and putting the notes there in the margins. So, so it's it's more user friendly this way. So when I saw it at first, I was uh, at first I was surprised and worried because I actually had talked about all this in my introduction and said, the reason all the notes are at the end. Um, and I thought, Oh no, <laughs> they didn't do what I said. I, what I said we'd done. Uh, but then I, I looked at it and I, I, uh, it was one of those kinds of collaborative aspects of publishing where you realize it's okay. And, uh, I just revised the introduction 
And I think it's okay to be user friendly sometimes, even if Michelle Eris wouldn't have been <laughs> user friendly. Right. right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the user friendly layout. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm really intrigued by, by the, the, well, the layout that you described that you would have, um, or that you initially wanted. Because, I mean, in addition to being punitive, <laughs> which is the word you use, it's also really disorienting for a reader. But I, I'm wondering whether that sort of disorienting and having to do the work almost sort of, discovering and being on an expedition within the text as one is reading um, would be productive and would let the reader read the text in a different kind of way. Yeah. Well, he wasn't thinking about, uh, I, I don't think he would have included, or I know he would not have included um, his letters to his wife in mm-hmm. this book. Uh, he, I, I think that my understanding from talking to his executors that he would have preferred those letters to be that correspondence to be destroyed. Um, once it had already been printed in these other books, it was hard for me not to translate it because it's so important. But he wouldn't, right. he wouldn't have included, Leiris himself wouldn't have included that stuff. And, uh, even his notes, the end notes in 1951, there aren't that many. So there's not, it wouldn't be that much, it's not that much flipping. I don't want to exaggerate. It's not that much flipping back and forth. But you, but you're right that, uh, the way it's, the way, uh, the way it, the effect it would have had, it would have reproduced. I think the book already does that. Some of the effect of feeling like you're on the expedition with him and that you're mm-hmm. on a, a sort of, uh, not quite a, it's not quite a detective tale, but, but kind of on a search mission or, or, uh, an inquiry, um, a field work of a certain sort. There's a, uh, a historian of anthropology, Vincent Deben, who wrote a book. Uh, in French originally, but the, in English it's translated as Far Afield. It was published by the University of Chicago Press um, a couple of years ago. And he writes about, he has a wonderful chapter on Leiris. He's interested in anthropologists like Levi Strauss, like Leiris, who wrote more literary works and more straightforward anthropological works, what the relation between literature and anthropology is for them. And he writes convincingly, I think, about uh, the effect that this book has of making you feel like you're being dragged along with Leiris <laughs> over two years <laughs> and having to go through the full range of uh, emotional responses and affective states mm-hmm. that Leiris himself is going through. So it's from his excitement and uh, the thrill of the encounter with the other that he expects as he's going to Africa, to sub-Saharan Africa for the first time. Uh, to his boredom, to his sense that ethnographic work is really like being a police magistrate and it's tedious and bureaucratic, to uh, his irritation when he's confronted with things he doesn't understand or languages he doesn't know and gets frustrated. Uh, you go through this range of states as you're reading the book that throw you into some of the same places that Leiris himself is as he's on the trip. And Vincent de Ben argues that the book deliberately does that, that it's set up, that it's the form of it is set up to do that, to put you through the same stuff that Leiris himself went through as unpleasant, mm-hmm. well, as pleasant and unpleasant, as exciting and uh, boring or overwhelming or frightening, or uh, it's a variety of states that you go through, uh, as all those adjectives as it can be. Leiris writes it because he's adamant about that first take quality about writing a diary entry and not going back and revising it. It actually creates the effect that you go through what he's going through. 
Um, so part of the reading of it does make you, it puts you in a, in a, uh, in a position of not quite a detective, but someone doing research or an inquiry or figuring things out or asking a certain set of questions and, and finding, following clues and drawing connections. It, it puts you in that kind of state. And it's part of not all 700 page books are worth reading. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say, but uh, part of what this one, what makes this one, I think worth reading and, and I think worth translating having, having spent a number of years doing it is, uh, is that special effect that, that odd and sometimes discomforting, mm-hmm. um, but, but very unique and very powerful also, a set of emotional states that it pulls you into sometimes against your will, (laughs) Uh, but that's part of what makes it special. It's part of what makes it such a remarkable accomplishment. Yes, absolutely. I want to come back to something that you said earlier um, in in your response when you described um, the the more troubling elements of the practice of anthropology in this moment. Um, And because one of the interesting and, and horrifying discoveries for me as I read Phantom Africa was sort of the questionable methods by which the members of the expedition obtained the artifacts that are, you know, as you described, now on display at the Quai Broly Museum in Paris. Um, and, you know, we hear often that European museums contain stolen art from former colonies. And I knew this in theory, but to read a firsthand account by someone who was present at this moment of, of pillaging, who both critiqued, but was also in some way complicit in these acts really drove that reality home for me. So it, it was a rediscovery of that reality for me. Yeah. As you dove into Larita's writing, was there anything in his text or any of his entries that were a discovery for you? Anything that was new or interesting or surprising? Hmm. About that issue in particular, about the the stealing and the questionable things, or 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 in just general? in general. So the stealing was what what was what was a discovery for me. Um, but I'm wondering <laughs> whether you had any particular moment like that as well as you were kind of working through his writing. I mean, there are definitely there, there are small moments, and some of them have to do with reading a lot of Michel Leris and thinking about his career and his life, mm-hmm. um, and thinking about his trajectory. I having written myself and done some other projects about the interwar period, um, I was struck by the ways the book is a the way, even at a great distance, because this is way pre-internet they're they're relatively cut off from connection to Europe, um, from connection, even to the metropolitan centers of most of Africa. So news is reaching them. Correspondence is reaching them with, with a delay, but if you know the, the, what's going on in France, well, what's going on in the world in the early 1930s, this is the period of the Depression. This is the period uh, there, there are violent struggles between fascist uh, far-right forces in the streets of Paris in February 1934. Um, in the early 30s, there are these kinds of uh, bloody uh, political conflicts roiling Europe that eventually lead to one of the things he mentions at the end of Phantom Africa, um, the appointment of Adolf Hitler. Uh, his sense, even at a great distance, of the uh, the world around him, um, this book as a record, even on the road and far away, as a record of the early 1930s is a pretty remarkable document. So that's not, that's not just about what anthropologists were doing, 
but in terms of what's going on in that period, it's a very interesting perspective for somebody who's from the metropole, who's, who grew up and, as I said, spent his formative years in Paris. It's a very interesting distance that he's writing from, but with a real sense of what's going on. He's getting letters from his wife about uh, family friends who had lost their fortunes in the in the economic crisis in the early 1930s. He's very attuned to almost more attuned because he's at a distance Mm. attuned to what's going on in Europe. And then in Africa, the other thing that I was struck by as I really followed him and you have to follow very closely as a translator, sentence by sentence was the degree to which this isn't just a book about French, a French writer confronting French anthropology under the, uh, in the context of French colonialism in the French empire. It really struck me hard as I spent the 700 pages with him, um, the degree to which Phantom Africa is actually about not just a confrontation with Africa, but with multiple Africas and multiple imperial uh, uh, points of contact with Africa, with African mm-hmm. realities. So there, as they go, yes, they're in French, what, what it's now Senegal, but was then uh, Dakar was the, was the capital, was the central city administratively in uh, l'Afrique occidentale française, the, the French West African colony, which hadn't been divided up um, into Senegal and Mali and the other nation states that we know post-independence. So yeah, they go to they start off landing in Dakar and they go through parts of French West Africa and then French Central Africa. Um, but they also spend time in the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, uh, in Nigeria, uh, so in British colonies as well. And they're meeting people like they're meeting American missionaries on the way and, and an odd and sundry set of characters from different places in the world who are traveling through Africa just as they are. And then they end up in Ethiopia, which you have to remember is at that point, 1931 to 33, Ethiopia is one of the three independent black nation states in the world, along with mm-hmm. Haiti and Liberia. And for, for African diasporic intellectuals, for black intellectuals, which is, which is what a lot of my own work focuses on, the symbolic role of those of independent black sovereignty, of black people managing their own affairs at the level of the nation state is a big deal. Uh, They go to Ethiopia and it's independent and they actually meet. The book sort of culminates at the end of the Ethiopian section of the book with Marcel Griol and Michel Leris. So his, his boss, the head of the mission and Leris himself having an audience with Haile Selassie, (laughs) the the emperor of Ethiopia, um, wow. at the end of the East Ethiopian section. And they have this awkward meeting with Haile Selassie because they're asking him to basically to refund them, to pay them money for equipment <laughs> that they lost along the mission. Uh, and they've gotten themselves into some trouble because they, in Ethiopia, have continued to take things. They have removed paintings from ancient churches in Ethiopia and replaced them with replicas Telling the wow. telling the Ethiopians, you know, we'll make we'll make a nice copy, and the the painting, the new version, it'll be shinier, it'll be brighter, and we'll t- we'll get rid of the original one for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm saying it as though it's a joke, but this is really what they're this is really what they're right. saying. Uh, yeah. So they got themselves into some trouble and have a very tense meeting with Haile Selassie, uh, who is is uh, has gotten reports about what they've been doing and who they're they have the 
gall to go and ask to give them hundreds of thousands of francs to replace equipment that they lost. Uh, but when you remember that Mussolini, that Italy in fascist Italy invades Ethiopia less than two years after they're there. And when you remember that the Mission Dakar Djibouti, the whole time they're in Ethiopia, they're staying in the Italian consulate. They're staying with the Italian consul. That's who's, who is their host in Ethiopia. Um, even independent Ethiopia is not, it's not simply independent. It's not uh, free from, it's not outside the orbit of these kind of imperial contexts. Uh, so it made me realize that the period the book, this book certainly, but then that the period and understanding Africa under colonialism always has to be um, about comparative colonialisms. It's also about the ways mm -hmm. empires see each other and the ways uh, people are not just stuck in one space and never move, but there are mm -hmm. West Africans who actually work as interpreter, interpreters or servants on the, on the mission and go with them all the way to Ethiopia. So even if you're thinking about the Africans who are part of the, the team, uh, they're taking Africans from one part of uh, Africa to another. And you start to see that these overlaps or contacts or interfaces among empires is part of the reality of empire. So it's not as simple as French writer, French uh, anthropology, French empire, but it's about anthropology under these different kinds of spaces inflected by or shaped by imperialism. And that I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I'd thought of it more and the way people tend to write about it is more that it's about French colonialism and they take these artifacts and they're in the French museum. Uh, they're in the Cape Branly. but reading the book and then re really digging into it as a translator made me realize this whole other uh, layering or set of registers in the book that uh, at the end of the day, I feel like, that's the that's the real message of the book. That's the real uniqueness of the book is that it's not just the French Empire, but about looking across empires. That's not so. That's not a one. Sorry, I couldn't answer the one nugget that was a surprise. But that's a, that's more about the implications of the book um, as a whole for what I thought I knew about this period and what I thought I knew about Africa under colonialism. Um, mm. it, it it changed the way I, I thought about some of these dynamics. So that's a that's, sorry to give a uh, <laughs> it's a long winded answer to it, and I, but I don't have a single nugget answer to that question, unfortunately. No, no, no. I think I think there, there's very little about this text that could kind of be distilled into a single nugget. No, um, no definitely not. But I, I really, I really love this idea of comparative colonialisms, and and particularly when you mention um, the Africans who are part of this expedition who worked as translators, because there's there so many layers in this book, and so you know you remind your readers that Lewis's journal is a work of translation, right? Because he needs you know these translators who are going to um, kind of mediate his interactions and 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 communication because he can't understand the languages that are spoken, um, nor can he always be understood. So. So essentially, your book is a translation of a translation. Um, and I, I want to go back in time for a second to your earlier book, The Practice of Diaspora, which has a section titled Translating the Word Negre, in which you unpack the baggage of the word, how it is used, claimed, disavowed. In Translating Phantom Africa, 
this translation of a translation. Were there any words or ideas that you found similarly challenging to translate where you had to kind of sit with the word and unpack the baggage um, and, and, or, or an idea that was similarly challenging to translate? And if so, did you employ any of what you call in the book translational strategies? Hmm. Well, the racial, the racial vocabulary uh, you know, is the obvious because that's what I'm writing about in my book and my diaspora book. Um, the, mm-hmm. the actual words that you use to to refer to uh, to racial categories, they're tricky in the way Leris uses them. And because I thought about that in my own scholarship so much, I tried to be very careful with that. But as I talk about in 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 my book, some of these terms, it's hard if you just assume that "neg" can be translated as "negro." Uh, mm-hmm. Some of these terms don't carry the same valences. They don't carry the same connotations, even if we're talking about the valence of Negro, what people would have associated with that term in, in 1931 uh, or in uh, 1934 when this book is published. Um, and Negro in English and Negre in French. He's often using the word Negre in the book, but he's not always capitalizing it. It actually... It actually is not systematic. Um, he capitalizes sometimes and doesn't other times. I found it very hard not to capitalize Negro because mm. that is, uh, and I, I, I'm not sure I, I tried to be very careful about that, but I, I remember struggling to get myself to, to put Negro in lowercase in English, um, knowing and having written myself about the, it seems like a very small thing, but the degree to which W.E.B. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson and other activists associated with that, especially the NAACP, um, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in the U.S. in the interwar period are fighting to have, I mean, really over years, fighting to have institutions, venues, uh, publishing venues like the New York Times capitalize the word Negro. The New York Times didn't capitalize Negro, I think, until around the time Phantom Africa came out. I think it was the mid-1930s after the NAACP pushing them to to uh, to afford African populations in the, in the New World this seemingly very small gesture of respect of capitalizing the proper noun of the racial de- designation. So it was very hard for me as the translator to replicate that lack of respect in putting small n Negro in my English. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also was just hard because neg, what that word means to him, like the passage I mentioned before from manhood, from his autobiography, where he talks about jazz leading him to Africa, leading him to anthropology. When he says, I was in those clubs and this was my first encounter with Negroes. That word is neg. That word is that word that I talk about. It's this very derogatory term in, in French that, as in English is usually like Negro in English is usually not capitalized in that period and is associated with racial otherness and, uh, and servitude and, and the status of enslavement to the point that, as I talk about in my book, uh, you look at 18th, 19th century dictionaries in French and the first definition of negre is slave. Um, Leris is in that, he's in that lexicon, um, this is the understanding, the connotation of negre that that 
the negritude movement that writers like Aimé Césaire from Martinique and Leopold Senghor from Senegal, really more at the, just at World War II and then after World War II, are pushing back against by reclaiming that negative word and making it a positive term of designation. So you could talk about a negritude, a positive blackness, um, and a negreness in a positive way. And they're doing mm -hmm. such extraordinary poetic work to try to rehabilitate that term. When Leiris is using it, it has all this very derogatory baggage attached to it. And uh, I, I, I don't mean that he's only using that word. He also uses the word noir, uh, the, the color term in French, so black. Um, but that term was also for French abolitionists and for for intellectuals of color in this period. Most of them, would, even Aimé Césaire, um, up until the point that he starts trying to invent this term negritude, which doesn't exist as a word, um, he would have called himself a noir. Uh, it's the term, it's the respectful way to refer to a person of African descent. Um, Leris also uses that word sometimes too. He's, he, he, uh, he fluctuates. He doesn't always do it the same way. So it was hard to, it was hard to get in my English because I was so aware. I was hyper aware of what a charged term it was, but in a way that's different from, uh, the N-word in English and Negro in English and Black in English, which had a, a different kind of force field of relations among them in for, for an English language uh, reader or speaker in the early 1930s. It's hard to it's hard to pull over. So I really mm -hmm. I really struggled with that and um, and did my best to try to mark off uh, when he's doing that the translational things that I was that I write about in the introduction are less the racial terms. I mean, you're making me think about that in particular, but that's less the way I talk about it in my introduction, the way I talk about it more in the introduction and then try to enact it this way in the translation is to pay attention to when he's using foreign words, using especially indigenous African languages, uh, terms from the languages that he's encountering along the way. He's very careful about that. And he does it in this, what I thought at the end of the day, what I thought was a very interesting approach where he, he uses them as loan words. He italicizes it the first time he uses it. Tarjuman is an interpreter. Uh, he italicizes that the first time. So a French language reader doesn't know what that, what that word means, but then he just starts using it without, without italics in his French as though a French leader mm -hmm. now should have learned that word. Uh, like we English speakers, it's not that big a deal if somebody says, uh, laissez faire, you know, they're words that have come into English from French. And Leiris, in this interesting way, is letting these African words, uh, from the dozens of languages that he's encountering from West to East Africa come into his French and change French in a way that the French reader, that as a reader, you have to deal with. Um, it's actually, I've talked to, uh, native to, to friends who are uh, native French speakers. And it's, it's an interesting challenge because there's so much of this, the other languages that he's encountering that he's pulling into French. Uh, there's so many unfamiliar words that you have to deal with that as a French reader. So I was mm. trying to, again, follow what he did and italicize the first time he used it and then just incorporate it. The other thing that's complicated in that respect is that he does that with European languages too. So when they're in the 
the English-speaking colonies, like the Sudan and in Nigeria, in British colonialism, you would call the administrator, the colonial administrator, a district commissioner. And Leris, in his French, just says, le district commissionnaire. <laughs> he uses the English <laughs> word. He doesn't, you can translate it. Um, he also uses the English word captain. There's a French equivalent that's pretty close, but he doesn't use the French word. He uses the English word captain, and he uses the Italian word commissario, and uh, without italicizing them. And so I thought it was really important to let my readers know that he was so conscious of the foreign languages around him and the way they were infiltrating his French with the English, what I had to do was when he used an English word, he didn't mark it off at all. He just pulled it into his French and it's mm -hmm. a loan word. But for me as a translator, my whole text is in English, right? I'm translating into English. So I tried to footnote those. So whenever Larry's used a word in English or Italian, I would footnote it and say in English in the original to try to show you um, as an English reader, show you the degree to which he's pulling these languages in. Um, it's something that otherwise you'd miss because the whole text is in English, so you don't see that difference. But for a French reader, you really notice it because you see all these English and Italian and, and lots of African languages, uh, these words coming in. So that, that's the way I tried to honor it in my in my translation as a as a kind of uh, it's not the same translational strategy that Leris uses. He one of the things I talk about that I realized again is a problem in translation, and then it made me realize what Leris was doing. Uh, he has this very interesting way of handling translation when it's happening when they're doing ethnographic research. Marcel Griol is is. Uh, his boss on the trip, the person who's running the expedition, didn't think he really needed to know the languages of the places you study. You just got an interpreter. So unlike a lot of anthropologists more recently where you do intensive immersion and you spend years there and you put yourself in that situation, Griot thought, you know, we go in for a week, we get some interpreters, we interrogate people and try to get a sense of their, uh, their cultural norms. Leiris, when there are all these interpreters around, he doesn't usually write about them except when they get to Ethiopia and he works very closely with this one Ethiopian interpreter who's also an, an intellectual in his own right. In West Africa and Central Africa, he doesn't say that the interpreter is there. He says he has this odd formulation. He says in French, it's, for example, il lui fait dire, which means literally he has it said or uh, he has him told. So has mm -hmm. someone tell something to someone else? And it's this very oblique or glancing way of formulating it. What he's saying is that the person said to the interpreter to translate something to the native, to the African, whose language he didn't speak directly. So he does it without saying, without identifying the man or woman in the room and without even saying that languages are changing, that something's being translated. It's just with that indirect object, the lui, to him, uh, that he has it said to him, uh, that he has him told. It's just through that that uh, that kind of formulation that Leiri signals that translation is going on. So mm -hmm. I was really struck by, on the one hand, Leiris is very aware of all these languages and he's pulling them into French in a way that's changing French. And on the other hand, 
the, everything they're doing is depending is dependent on translation. That they have all these interpreters helping them, and Leiris is eliding that. He's very carefully not telling you the translators in the room. Um, or he's, the translator's almost there, but not quite avowed, not quite admitted into the sentence. And so I was really interested in that contrast, all these languages, but I'm not going to identify the translator. So in, as I was translating, I, I was trying very hard to, uh, to be careful about that, not to correct it, um, not to, again, not to smooth it over, but that tension in Leiris's writing, I wanted to try to capture that because I think it's one of the most interesting things about the book. And I wanted my readers, readers of Larry's in English to get that, um, to get that he's wrestling with this and that he's not comfortable saying there's a translator there and this is the translator's name. I, I really wanted to be sure to highlight that for my readers. Mm. It's really fascinating to think about the layers of translation and the moments when the translator is there, not there, recognized, disavowed, uh, we, we've talked a lot about your role as a translator, and I want us to just kind of briefly shift gears for a second um, to think about your role as a writer. Um, and so, you know, to shift to, to one of your other books that came out this year, um, okay. <laughs> which, is, which is such a great thing to say. But, and, and it's just a, I just kind of want to get listeners to, to have a brief um, introduction to this work as well, which really deserves its own um, kind of interview on its own. But I, I was really intrigued by your book, Epistrophes, Jazz, and the Literary Imagination, because when I picked it up, I expected to read a book about jazz in literature, so references to jazz in literary texts. Um, but it's a book about what you call jazz literature, so writings by jazz musicians. And you look at anything from letters to poetry to liner notes um, in a way that shifts us away from the novel as the sort of perceived primary literary form. Can you tell us just a little bit about this idea of jazz literature and what was it like in writing epistrophes, working with a jazz, with a jazz archive that contains so many different genres of text? Yeah, it's... Uh... Well, I'd like to pretend that there's some there's some master plan, but the the fact of the the coincidence is more that I had these big projects that I finally got off my desk, and they came they came out more <laughs> or less at the same time. Uh, there there was no master plan except these are things I'd been working on for a long time, and finally was able to uh, able to pull together. In terms of the parallels between them, I guess one thing I'd say, although they're very different and uh, represent mm -hmm. different parts of things that I work on, I am drawn to um, writers, well, artists who collect themselves, who archive themselves, who have a mm -hmm. sense of their own output, not just that if they're a musician, they know harmony or they know their scales or they know the, the chords to that particular tune, but they have a sense of or an interest in the historical importance, the ramifications of what they're doing, and an urge to even if they're an instrumental musician, comment on it, to write about it, to uh, think about its significance in a broader sphere. So Phantom Africa, you could say that uh, that Leiris is part of what it is, is him archiving his, his sense of the trip as he's on it. He's giving you his first take, his first attempt, even as he's working as the archivist for the official mission, this archive of him writing these diary entries and 
uh, the experiences and documents he puts into the book. It's his own archive, and, it, and it's kind of a counter-archive. It's not the official story. And uh, in the my work on music, I, I'm also drawn to similar kinds of issues where musicians aren't just is partly responding to some of our most the most banal stereotypes about African diasporic uh, performance and creativity uh, that that come to mind immediately the, the the black jazz musician the instrumentalist especially as natural as spontaneous as uh, uh, simply launching into the moment of genius without any sense of much less respect for the preparation, the what jazz musicians call woodshedding, the hard work and the intellectual work. Um, something that I learned, especially from the, the 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 work of the writer and poet and scholar Nathaniel Mackey, who, who writes powerfully about this. The intellectual work that goes into jazz, as supposedly spontaneous as it may be. Um, there's a lot of preparation and a lot of thought that goes into it. Um, there's a reason that Amiri Baraka, the poet and critic, also uh, argues that that jazz is a, that music. He says is a mode of thought. Music is a mode of cognition. So, in respecting that, in thinking about the relations between jazz and literature from that pers- from that angle, uh, to my mind, you you don't just think about the ways the music has inspired writers or provided formal inspiration or formal models for writers like from Langston Hughes uh, and Sterling Brown and Zora Neale Hurston on down um, in the 20th century, Hughes being inspired by the, by the prevalence of, uh, by the, the, the popularity of the blues to try to write a blues poem, to write, try to write a poem that would approximate or capture some of the power of that musical form at the moment when the blues is the dominant American popular music. You don't just approach it that way, which kind of assumes, even if you don't say it outright, that Langston Hughes really wished he were a saxophonist. <laughs> that you, and, and there are there are musicians and writers who make claims to this effect that music is, that black music is the pinnacle and the paradigm of all black expression, that music is what we all wish we could get to. Now, respecting that and, and thinking about the reasons that, that for a number of us, that's a, that's an alluring argument. And I'm kind of pushing back against it. And I'm saying as much as Langston Hughes wanted to get close to, or to capture some of the power of music, wait a second, let's look at the musicians. And isn't it interesting that Duke Ellington said uh, in writing, I really want to accomplish something like what the Harlem Renaissance writers have accomplished. I really want to do something. I wish I could do something in my music that would accomplish what, they accomp- what, the, what they've been able to do with words. Uh, or that Louis Armstrong, who didn't even have, he didn't even finish junior high school. Um, so this, in, in terms of educational background, is not uh, is not someone uh, with an elite background, but someone who's driven to write. Louis Armstrong was on the road, like Ellington, for more than 300 days a year and is carrying around with him, literally in a trunk, <laughs> uh, built for, for the, this purpose, uh, a typewriter and a reel-to-reel deck that wow. he would make recordings backstage, not recordings of the concert, but just recordings of him telling jokes with his band and meeting with fans. He would record stuff and make his own archive, as it were. But he's also sitting backstage. There are pictures of him backstage in a bathrobe after a show, typing out letters 
to fans, to fellow musicians, to critics, to scholars. He writes, as I try to write about in that chapter, he writes in this, he types in this really interesting way. And approaching it from this angle, as I say, my, my, my task then is to try to figure out not just what does music mean for a Langston Hughes or for an Amiri Baraka, but what does writing, what does the literary mean for an Armstrong or an Ellington or a Mary Lou Williams or a Cecil Taylor uh, or a Marion Brown or a Henry Threadgill. Now, because I, I try not to just write about this, the, the usual suspects, although I do write about some of the more, the bigger names in the tradition, uh, like Baraka and Hughes and, and Ellison to some degree. Um, I, I wanted to try to write about some people who haven't been written about as much. And, uh, so I, I gravitated on both sides, <laughs> both in both media, um, towards people who maybe have not gotten as much attention as they might have, but trying to think about it from this, from this perspective about the ways black artists, whether you're a writer or a musician, the ways thinking across media um, mm -hmm. can be productive. Again, you can compare mm -hmm. it with Leiris. It's Leiris, mm -hmm. what does it mean to practice anthropology when you're not an anthropologist? <laughs> like to transgress right. and to dare to do something that you're supposedly not. Um, there's a famous interview with Muhal Richard Abrams, who just passed away, the great pianist and founder of the AACM the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians in Chicago um, in the 60s. And a, a critic is saying something about the history of the music and Muhal stops him and he says, well, wait, wait a second, you, you need to understand, I am a practicing historian as well as a musician. So he's saying, I claim the right to interpret the music just as much as you mm -hmm. do. It's not that, that mm -hmm. uh, I'm the raw material that then you're going to to judge the significance of I'm doing and I'm invested in doing the intellectual work as much as you are. Um, mm -hmm. When you pay attention to that, then that question doesn't become a one, the question of the relation between music and literature in in black expression doesn't become a one way street. It doesn't become music is always the thing everybody wishes they were doing <laughs> um, and is influenced by. Right. But then you start thinking about, uh, how does stepping out of your comfort zone help you? So how does it, uh, how mm. does it change the way you're a musician that you spend so much time writing too? Just as for a writer that you're listening to music, that you're trying to figure out what a blues poem might be, how does that change your writing? So that's, that's the way the book is structured. And that meant in looking for things that were less written about that there's a little more than half of the book is really focusing on musicians who write and trying to think, well, what does writing mean to an Ellington or an Armstrong or a Sun Ra? Uh, that's, that's why it, it gets framed that way. And, and tries, I try to make my reader go back and forth between music and literature, thinking about these cross boundary, the cross medium moves from both directions. 
Mm. It's really intriguing to think about the ways that writers and artists and anthropologists are, like you say, thinking across media and, and, and crossing these boundaries in ways that are sometimes transgressive and, and make us rethink then how we receive this work. Um, I usually end by asking my guests to tell us what they're working on now, <laughs> but I'm not quite sure how I feel about posing this question thing. to someone who just wrote two books. Um, <laughs> But so I guess I'll ask, where is your work taking you next? <laughs> well, as you might expect, uh, more than one direction. Um, <laughs> I guess one thing that's relevant to what I what I was just saying um, in response to your question, I've been writing a book that's emerged out of a class I've been teaching for a while at Columbia in the Rare Book and Manuscript Library that's about uh, the collections of a range of Black politically radical intellectuals. So these are people who are street speakers in Harlem in the 20s and 30s through people like Amiri Baraka, an important not just poet, but also political activist in New York and in Newark in the 60s and 70s and, and beyond until his death a few years ago. Um, the basic question of the, of the book, of the project, which is just called Black Radicalism in the Archive, is why for these public figures, these public intellectuals who are so involved in political mobilizing out there in the street, trying to organize, why are they also at home making scrapbooks? Why are they also not just, Baraka isn't just collecting his own drafts of his poems, but he's collecting videotapes and audio tapes of the conferences he's going to. He's collecting flyers from other people's stuff. Uh, why is collecting and archiving part of what they're doing. And is there a way to think about collecting, archiving, preserve, preserving, classifying, documenting, not just as kind of backward looking, but as part of political activism, as a forward looking, uh, progressive part of what it means to be politically radical. Uh, so that book, I'm looking at Hubert Harrison, who's the Caribbean street speaker, um, in Harlem in the 19th and socialist and black nationalist, the first editor of Marcus Garvey's Negro world active in Harlem in the teens and twenties. Uh, it goes to Paris a little bit with, uh, Ada Bricktop Smith, who Michelle Eris was fascinated with and hung out at her club, mm -hmm. the grand Duke, which also was mm -hmm. the club where Langston Hughes worked when he moved to Paris. He got a job in the same club. He might've crossed paths with Michelle Eris. Uh, he got a job as a busboy in the same club without telling them that he, that he was an aspiring poet um, when he moved to Paris in the mid-1920s. Uh, so there's a chapter on her. She was a singer and running this club, but she was also – her record, she was keeping financial records of the club and diaries herself, and her records are really interesting. And then C.L.R. James, the Trinidadian Marxist, uh, Baraka, I mentioned, James Foreman, the SNCC – uh, the civil rights activist who's act, who's part of uh, SNCC as well as the Black Panthers, who in the late 1960s was trying to write a biography of Frantz Fanon and went to Algeria and to Martinique to do research for it. So that's that's what I've been working on. Really, It's really about, I, I guess that's already there in the Leiris. It's already there in my diaspora book, which talks about archives to some degree. And uh, it's certainly there in Epistrophes in the jazz and literature book where I talk about this self-archiving or what I was calling a few minutes ago, self-archiving uh, by these musicians as well as writers. So I'm, I'm, I guess, going deeper into that and really trying to think about the material 
practices of really if, uh, Amiri Baraka said to me once, uh, I had him the first time I taught this class, right when his papers had come to Columbia, he came to the class and he, he said, you know, I just have a habit of throwing things in boxes. Um, <laughs> and so the book is really trying to, to think about the politics of that habit throwing things mm. in boxes and organizing a documentary record of the past and what that means politically. Um, so mm. that's, that's the main thing that I'm, that I'm trying to get to work now. Hopefully it won't take me another eight or 10 years to do it. <laughs> <laughs> the politics of throwing things in boxes. That is so <laughs> fascinating. And, and it's such an interesting constellation of, of figures that you're thinking about together. I don't think I've ever seen Bricktop and CLR James together. So I'm, I'm together. really, <laughs> right, right. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to learning more about this work. Um, I've been talking with Brent Hayes Edwards about his new translation of Michel Louis' work titled Phantom Africa. And we've heard a bit also about his new book, Epistrophes, Jazz and the Literary Imagination. Brent, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. 